welcome to the next episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. On this episode, we are going to talk to Jacob Bloomfield Mizrak. Jacob is a composer, a sound designer, and a sound supervisor. Jacob and I talk about his journey to start Immersive Sound, his first company, and then his evolution to the West Coast and his work for Berkeley Sound Artists under his mentor, Jim Lebrecht. On this episode, Jacob shares secrets on how to keep working for a long time in the industry, as well as how to grow your creative community. I think there's a couple films that are out right now that Jacob and his mentor got a chance to work on. The most important one right now is on Netflix, and it is Crip Camp, and you can go out and watch this film right now. Crip Camp won the Audience Choice Award at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Please welcome Jacob to the podcast. Yeah, Josh, thank you for having me on. It's, um, it's a privilege to be asked to participate in your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a privilege to, to ask you questions, so I, I appreciate all of your creative work. Oh, thanks, man. Well, it all works out then. My first question for most folks normally is, can you tell me a little bit about growing up and when you realized that creativity might be the answer? Yeah, so my parents started to notice that I had a strong connection with music when I was really young. My mom likes to tell a story about how I was in a crib and she put on Mozart for the first time and I started waving my hands in the air pretending like I was conducting. And it might have just been a mom with mom goggles on, but I did seem to respond pretty strongly to classical music when I was a little kid. And so it kind of went from there. My dad had a piano in our building when I was growing up. I grew up in a very unusual uh, living circumstance, which I actually haven't told a lot of people about, but I, I basically grew up in a cement factory that had been converted to artist lofts uh, in the early 1980s in Emeryville. And it was a building full of probably 30 to 40 struggling young artists who couldn't afford a live workspace anywhere in the Bay Area. And so I grew up around a lot of really creative people. And I was a little kid running around hallways of painters and sculptors and musicians. And so I was really in a, a pretty special creative environment. And so there was a piano in the building and I would just start banging on it when I was a little kid. And my dad played a little bit. By the time I was eight, he taught me all the songs that he knew. He wasn't a great pianist, but he knew a few things. And so then he started hunting around and got me into music school and private lessons. And, and then, yeah, it really kind of all came together when I went to a music conservatory when I was 10. And then it was, everything else was, was sort of sidelined for me. And it was just music from the age of 10 to, to 38, which is what I now am. As you started to understand the journey a little bit more, what were the first instruments you played? And then how did that transition to working on soundtracks? So there were quite a few transitions for me that got me to where I am now. And piano was the first instrument. And then I think I, so I applied to music school when I was 10 and they didn't want another pianist. 
they could use a clarinet player or a flute player. I didn't know which either one of those were, so I said, sure, I'll learn the clarinet. And so I started to study clarinet at the age of 10. And then by the time I was 13, I discovered Nirvana. So I thought, well, I have to be able to play the guitar. And so then I went to high school and I was in rock bands. And I was in classical music ensembles playing the clarinet. And I was in some jazz ensembles playing both. And then I got a scholarship to NYU to study classical clarinet and jazz guitar. And then I was in New York playing in a whole bunch of ensembles. And I did that for a long time. My, my focus was always more music than film until a good buddy of mine had started doing production sound in New York for commercials and film. And he needed an extra boom up for a job. And I needed some extra money because it's hard to support yourself as a, you know, a, a gigging musician. And I just kind of hit it off with production and film work. And I made some good friends who were young, independent, just starting out filmmakers. And we sort of helped each other. Uh, they knew that I could play instruments. They couldn't afford proper composers to score their film or even to mix their film. And I had learned how to edit and mix just from a musical background in Pro Tools. And so I either would do jobs for free or I'd say, hey, you know, I'll do one for free. And if I do a decent job, pay me for the next one. And I did that for several years until I built a pretty strong career doing location sound for Saturday Night Live and the New York Times and a bunch of films being shot in New York. And then I started doing post-production sound for independent filmmakers and, and some commercial work. And then I started my company, Immersive Sound, coming out of basically a bunch of friends that I had worked with for years in New York. I didn't know about the location sound recording along with the post-production sound recording. Uh, that's that's really interesting. You must be a really dynamic collaborator just to be open to that level of diversity because sometimes people get caught in like one or the other. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I worked really hard. Um, it's one of the few things I, I do give my credit myself credit for. I actually worked at a concert hall called the Merkin Concert Hall in New York for a long time before... I started getting into film, and one thing that I learned when I was there was they offered me a job that was a three-pronged position, and it was like 15 hours a week in the box office selling tickets, 15 hours a week in the booking department as an assistant helping to book the shows that were there, and 15 hours a week in the marketing department. And what I learned is that if you're going to be good at your job, the more that you can learn about satellite positions that are connected to the core of what you do, the greater the understanding will be for the task at hand. So the fact that I have a production sound background and then also a sound design and a dialogue editing and re-recording mixer background and then now a scoring background, they all inform each other in a really powerful way because I can receive a film that is unedited, is totally unmixed, and is maybe has some temp music in it and already see how all of those pieces are going to go together before a dialogue editor, sound designer, or, you know, composer are going to get their hands on it. Wow. As you slowly founded your first company, or this company, Immersive Sound, what led you to Berkeley Sound Artists 
I, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. I'm going to have to rephrase the question, but is it Berkeley Sound Artists or is it Berkeley? That's right. Yes. Um, yes. Berkeley Sound Artists is the other company. So my partner is a big believer in cosmic energy, and it took a long time for me to even be open to sort of the guiding hands of the universe. And I'm much more open to it now because my journey from New York was very serendipitous. My partner and I were visiting my parents in California for a holiday, and we were just sitting on the living room floor watching a movie thinking, gosh, it feels so great just being in Northern California. I wish we could move here. And she said, well, why don't you just see if there's any sound companies in the Bay Area that you might be able to work with? And I'd already built my own company, so I didn't want to just apply as like a dialogue editor to go work for someone else. But I really wanted to partner with someone and, and build something special. So very casually, half paying attention while watching a movie, I did a Google search for sound design in Berkeley. And the very first result that came up was Berkeley Sound Artists, and the contact information was Jim Lebrecht. And I thought, sure, nothing to lose. I'll just send an email. So I sent an email, and the next morning I woke up and... Jim had written me back. He said, your timing is very interesting. I've been running Berkeley Sound Artists for 20 years, but I need more time to make this film of mine, Crip Camp, which, as a side note, just uh, won the Audience Award at Sundance and is being produced by the Obamas for Netflix. So Jim and I went and got a cup of coffee, and we started talking, and he's just one of the sweetest human beings I've ever met, and he's a really hard worker, and he cares about his filmmakers dearly. And something in us just clicked and we said you know what we should keep talking about this so i went back to new york after my vacation and every couple of weeks jim and i would hop on a phone call or i would fly out and we would talk a little bit more and based just on my new friendship with jim my wife and myself decided to move to california we had a kid uh and we essentially partnered with jim and his company berkeley sound artists he needed someone to run the day-to-day and do the booking and the calendars, scheduling the staff and everything. So I took on that role. And then after a year or two of working together, he needed someone to fully take the reins so that he could release his film and, and sort of give his attention fully to that. And so now I'm essentially operating Berkeley Sound Artists and Immersive Sound and Jim still works at Berkeley Sound Artist and is still a mentor to me, but they're all sort of under my wing at this point. When you first moved to Berkeley, what was your first, I guess, composing or scoring job? Because I know you were there to kind of be the glue to hold it together, almost holding the space for Jim so that he could go and finish this movie. I was definitely thrown into the deep end. So the first job that happened was The Long Shadow, which was an introduction through Jim to some clients of his that he's been working with for a really long time. The Long Shadow's on PBS right now, doing a national run, which is very exciting, and I ended up scoring that film, and simultaneously, I started to have to learn how to juggle like a madman between scoring a full-length documentary that was going to be, you know, broadcasted around the country and also managing our staff and being a supervising sound editor to put our teams together for all of these films. We probably 
do the post-production sound for about 100 films every year. Some of them are features, some of them are shorts, but we're very busy. And so trying to be a composer, scoring these films while simultaneously being a supervising sound editor and running these two companies, it's been it's been a lot. That's mentioned I had a, a kid. It's been a busy couple of years. How old is is your kid? Oliver is my two and a half year old son. That's awesome. Uh, I think it's really important for listeners to know that um, you can actually have a family and work. It's busy, but at the same time, I think there's a level of fulfillment there. Uh, that's important, you know. I absolutely agree. I think life balance is one of the hardest things to achieve and also one of the most important things to strive for. I give my partner, Erica, a lot of credit because when you get wrapped up in these jobs, you feel like, oh gosh, I have to work till midnight every night. And she has really helped me figure out how to be home for dinner at 6 o'clock every night, Monday through Friday, so that we have family dinner together. And I'm up every morning early, but I still get to say hi to my kid for 15 minutes every morning before I run out the door. And for the most part, I don't work weekends. Sometimes I have to travel for work or if it's a really tight score deadline, you know, I'll, I'll put in an extra day or two on a weekend. But for the most part, yeah, I think it's really important to to find a life balance. Otherwise, at a certain point, you don't have the same personal fulfillment that you might try to achieve by just working 100 hours a week. Somehow I think it makes you a better collaborator to have a family or uh, not be single. I think some some of the people that I've worked with on film sets that were single, they always end up, uh, you know, doing something different than, for example, the person with a partner or or the person with a family has to, you know, go take care of stuff, and they're always thinking about other people, even though they have to think about themselves. So it's a good, mm-hmm. yeah. There's something there, and especially in filmmaking and storytelling and documentary filmmaking, um, empathy is a very important part of the process you have to be able to feel for the people that you're engaging with when you're telling stories and having personal relationships at home outside of work i think is a really critical part of developing your own empathy skills the empathy is one of those things that it's like a guiding light sometimes in the darkness or just in the chaos to be honest with you after that first score uh the long shadow what happened next that you know evolved you along the way over just the last couple of years learning how to be a boss how to be a good employer is a very challenging and unique skill set as well i'd never quite had to do that i was a band leader in new york for 20 years so i I think i actually learned quite a bit from being a fair and kind uh, and gracious band leader but having employees actually rely on you to be able to pay their rent and if they have kids to feed their own families that's that's a really challenging thing so i try to get feedback from them and be as receptive to criticism and hopefully constructive criticism as i can be and i have a staff of about 10 sound designers and engineers at this point that basically look up to me every couple weeks saying hey is there a film that we're going to work on this week is there is there work for us and so i'm out there hustling to make sure that we're always working on good projects and projects that they can relate to and care about and that's been really rewarding uh it's really challenged me to 
sort of be selfless in a way because I think I have to put some of their needs before mine at times. And simultaneously, I, I'm also trying to stay connected to music because that was my first love, so taking on as many film scores as I can, um, which has been great. I've, I've done a lot of film scores in the last couple of years that are all sort of circulating around the country now. And gosh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of a whirlwind, honestly. What are the other film scores so that listeners can go search out those films to uh, hear your work? Decade of Fire is another film score I'm really proud of. That's a film that's playing in New York right now, and I think it's doing a festival tour right now. It's about the Bronx in the 70s and the arson, the fires that were being set by landlords to allow them to collect insurance and speed up gentrification, which there was some politics involved with that too, which was horrifying. But that was a really special film score. Let's see, there's another film by the maker of The Long Shadow called Is Your Story Making You Sick, which is a really special film. I'm not sure if that's been released just yet. I think it's about to be released. It's about sort of personal trauma and group therapy in, in Sedona. And Chasing Portraits is another film I scored last year about artwork that was lost in the Holocaust. That film has been released and is cruising around the country somewhere. It's a great film. And gosh, there's a few more. Yeah, that's off the top of my head. And then Crypt Camp, which is coming out, of sound supervisor on, so it's a different process, but also really wonderful creative process. That was just at Sundance. Imaginuni is a film I scored. That was a narrative film that just premiered at Slamdance. And I think that's in the festivals now. I don't think that's online yet. But that's a great film, a very Lynchian, sort of abstract, Mulholland Drive style psychological thriller that was a really special film to score as well and you cannot kill david arquette is the name of the film which documents his wrestling career um i didn't score that one but i'm the supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer on that narrative so yeah there's, there's quite a few projects where you can see some of my work that are out there circulating at the moment is there any way that you approach a documentary versus a narrative film? Any difference, or is it... Yeah, I'm curious. Well, I think we should probably specify the question, because if we're talking about film scoring, then in some ways, yes. If we're talking about sound design, it's, it's a very different process in how we sound design a narrative from how we sound design a documentary. So it, I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide which you'd be interested in. I guess let's start with film scoring, and then after that, let's definitely go into sound design, because I think that is really important for narrative films and documentaries. In approaching a score for a narrative versus a documentary, it is a very different process, and yet there are also themes that can be consistent. So for a narrative film... My general approach to a score is that music needs to be an extension of the emotions inside the heads of the characters. A great example is the score for Joker, which is just a clear representation of the developing madness that is blossoming as his character is finding himself. And when I score a narrative, I find that you have to get inside head of the character in a lot of ways 
in a different dimension than even the script might want to show. So you've got all these elements in a narrative, which is you've got the script, you've got how the actors are going to interpret the script, you can have how the filmmakers decide to have the shot, and then you have the music. And the music has to be this sort of emotional narrative of its own. Of It's like a guide. It's a guiding hand so that the viewers sort of know emotionally what they're supposed to be connecting to. You don't want to make it over the top. You don't want to lead the witness too much. But a narrative score is a very emotional experience. For scoring a documentary, there's some of that. But a, a documentary, if it's a true document of sharing one person or a few people's truth, you don't want to make it overly emotional. You want to sort of, you're presenting the viewer, I think, in a documentary with a series of choices, with a series of information, and they get to make their own decisions. And it's more, um, in some ways, it's more engaging of the intellect than a narrative might be. Narrative is taking someone along for a story most of the time, and the documentary for me is more of a, a series of laying out information. So I tend to approach documentary scores a little bit more gently than I would with a narrative. I think that underscore in a doc is nice to have it as sort of a bed, as sort of a, a general gentle hand, but um, but narrative, I guess, I get to be a little bit more adventurous with it. What about the sound design? I think for filmmakers, sound design is really important. Can you talk about the difference between the sound design in a documentary and a narrative film? When I approach the sound design for a documentary versus a narrative, documentary sound design has to disappear. A great sound designer is invisible, especially when they're working on a documentary. Documentaries in general should feel like it's all production sound. It should just feel like you are in this environment, you're in the world of whatever's happening in the film, and any sound design that doesn't disappear will just become distracting. Now, that being said, a viewer wants to feel as close as possible to the content of the film, and the way to do that is with these auditory suggestions. The brain will make you feel closer if it feels like it's, if it's physically close to the subject in the film. So let's say you have character who puts a cup down on a table in the middle of an interview if you don't hear the cup your subconscious says i'm not hearing something that's happening and it's going to remove you one step from the film if we very subtly fold in and put back the sound of a cup landing on a table then all of a sudden your brain keeps the connection and you feel a little bit closer same goes for doors opening and closing, or if you're walking down the street and a car goes by in a shot, you have to hear a little bit of that car going by, otherwise your brain disassociates and it feels like something's off and it pulls you a step back away from the film. So, so many filmmakers, especially first-time filmmakers, come to us and they hire us and we, we start talking about the scope of work for their documentary film and they say, you know what, we don't want any foley, we don't want any sound design, this really just needs to be a raw document. And what we end up doing is we talk them through, like, you will have no idea that any of this foley or sound design has been recreated, but you're going to miss it if it's not there. And so we often have to sound design 80% of a film with a little bit of ambience, a little bit of birds, a few doors closing, whatever it is, 
just so that the viewer feels that much more connected to the film. So that's how we approach documentary film. Narrative film is a whole different story. Narrative film, you can go as big as you want. You don't want it to be distracting, but you can enhance it in a way that is is outside the lines of reality. So a lot of times films want to take you to this magic realism sense of sound design, whether it's a dream flashback or any kind of animated sequence or any type of film that has fight scenes or car chases or airplanes, heaven forbid we're talking about space exploration, all of those things need huge sound design and sort of the bigger the better in most cases for that. So it's it's a very different approach doc versus narrative sound design. That makes a lot of sense. Keeping the, is it diegetic? Would that be the term? Yep. Keeping the diegetic sound for the documentaries and then the non-diegetic, mm-hmm. just exploring that world and like making this quilt work of sound. Can you talk a little bit about Crip Camp? I know that your team and you did the sound design and the sound recording. And like all the post sound, is that correct? Or like, what is the exact details of that? Because, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about that process for you. So we did all of the post-production sound for Crip Camp. And that included sound design, Foley, sound effects editing, dialogue editing, a lot of archival restoration. The film greatly takes place in the 70s and 80s. So... There was so much archival audio that either needed to be cleaned up or it needed to be completely redesigned. We had to do tons of Foley and sound design for the archival audio in the film. And that's a really good example of having to keep audio invisible. So we had to do so much rebuilding of these worlds that took place in the 70s and 80s. But if ever anyone caught on that it sounded fake, it would destroy the integrity of this archival footage. So we really had to do a lot of very careful and very judicious sound design for the archival material in the film. And yeah, we got a great opportunity in being the post house for the film. The two directors of the film are Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan, and they were fantastic to work with. They uh, gave us a lot of insight on how they wanted us to handle the post-production sound for the film. And Jim Lebrecht, who's one of the filmmakers, is also my partner and mentor. He's the founder of Berkeley Sound Artists. So it was a really special experience for me getting to work with him as both a mentor, a partner, and then also a director of the film. And he was also the re-recording mixer on the film, and I was a sound supervisor. So there were a lot of different, I don't even know how to say it exactly, but there's so many different relationships, even just between the two of us, different roles we had to play in getting this film mixed. So that was, and I just, I love him as a human being. So I've worked with him for a long time. So it was just, it was the first time we've worked together in that capacity. And it was really a treat. So I guess as your position has evolved at Berkeley Sound Artists, you've begun to travel and go to these film festivals and go to these conferences. What is the goal when you go to these conferences? And then how is that just another extension of you know, the process, because you are out there trying to make sure that more jobs come in and so that you can kind of, in a way, keep this this place open that's been around for a long time, a long, yeah. which, which, which mm-hmm. is very special, because I think 
if more people in the entertainment industry knew that you need to make decisions based off of longevity, then I think it, you know, might be a different place. So I think this is a really special, special place that you work at because I was lucky enough to find a place like that as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot to unpack in there. Berkeley Sound Artist has been around for 20 years, and it's a small mom and shop post house. And I think that says a lot about the company and a lot about Jim Lebrecht, who founded it. And one of the greatest experiences for me has been to learn how he pulled that off. And he did not do it by being aggressive or finding lots of clients or marketing. He, I don't think he really spent more than a couple hundred bucks a year on marketing in his entire life. And the way he did it was by caring about the filmmakers he worked with and about caring about their films as if they were his own films. And for him, it has never mattered about if a film is challenging or if the budget's a little bit low. It only matters, and I can phrase it this way, the thing that he taught me is to always make decisions in regards to budget, in regards to staff, in regards to timeline. The decisions that we make at Berkeley Sound Artists are always based on what's best for the film. Sometimes that's not even what's best for the filmmaker or what's best for us. But when we put the film itself first, we have found that clients are happy, that the films do well when they go out into the world, and that clients want to come back and work with us again. That has been really important for us. And so I've embodied that as much as I can. So when I go to film festivals, I take that with me. And I've been lucky enough to travel a lot this year to Sundance, to Slamdance, to the Big Sky Festival coming up. Um, I was just at the Center for Creative Photography. They had a festival in Arizona that we mixed a really wonderful film for. And when I go to these film festivals, I have two things that I'm always looking for. I want to see how our films sound in all of these different theaters around the country because every room sounds different. And that's a huge challenge for a post house to work in our rooms, make sure that the film sounds good in any room that it plays in. And the second goal for me is to meet these filmmakers in these festivals and talk to them and see what they're working on, see what other films are coming out, see what style of filmmaking is evolving, see how other post houses are mixing their films. I always want to be up to date on any new styles for for sound and one might think that when you're mixing a documentary oh there's a tradition it should always just sound like this that's not true mixing a film is an art and art evolves and sonic palettes evolve and we have to continue to evolve with that so i think that's really the reason i love going to film festivals i get to hear the films out in the world and i get to see all these other wonderful films and filmmakers sort of just doing their thing. I've asked you a lot of questions and we're approaching the 45 minute mark. So I know that your, your time is busy. And, and so I just want to be super respectful of it. Is there anything else you want to talk about or any questions you would like me to ask? Cause I've definitely asked some questions. <laughs> I can't think of any, I mean, Crip Camp is important. The film Mejnuni we talked about a little bit about, I do, love scoring narratives and Mejnuni is one of the few narratives I've got to do this year. Most of them have been docs. Maybe and... I ask you a question about that, just specifically about uh, Mejnuni. Is Am I pronouncing it correctly? Mejnuni? Almost. It's a tough one. So the, the spelling helps. It's M-A-J 
N U N I. So Majnuni. 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 Yeah. I am sorry for uh, butchering Majnuni, the title. Can you talk about that process of scoring a narrative that was at Slamdance? I love scoring Majnuni. And the reason is I got to go pretty deep down the rabbit hole of sounds that would not normally be considered okay to use for a film score. The protagonist in this film is kind of a broken man. He's a little bit falling apart. And I I started using broken instruments in the film score, and they just connected in a really special way. So I have an old organ from the 60s that was in desperate need of repair. And before I had it repaired, I thought, you know what, let me explore this a little bit. So I started plugging it in and miking it up, and it was making all of these terrible humming sounds that were basically every key on the keyboard playing at once at a very low volume, very dissonant chromatic sound. And I took that and I I ran it through a bunch of sort of analog tape machines and some analog reverbs. And all of a sudden there was the sonic bed that became the, the background for the film. And it, it felt like the environment of the streets where this character goes running through at night. And so I did that and I would take these sort of broken audio cables and get these great terrible humming sounds out of them that were very static and aggressive and i would use those as little key accents throughout the score and it just creates this sense of quiet violence that that was perfect for the lead character in the film so that kind of approach is something i don't normally get to do in a documentary film i get to be adventurous i get to try some new things in every doc that i work on but i do love scoring narrative films for the reason of there's really no wrong answer. Whatever whatever you can find that has an emotional connection to the film is good to go. It's almost like you have to find the character yourself so that you go on the journey in order to find the sonic reality that mm-hmm. that could be there. And I'm always impressed. I think most great composers out there, I think the really special composers out there that I, I still look up to, they still push their own limits every time they get a a film score. They still find something new in themselves every time they write a film. I'm sure that John Williams and composers of that caliber are always looking inward to find some new part of themselves that they're even nervous to explore. And that's where you find the vulnerability and the, the deeper emotions that make a film great. I think I got one last question. Is there any advice for filmmakers when they're going into this part of the process, things that they can be open about or things that will make the process easier for them versus uh, being a deer in headlights, so to speak? Specifically, one piece of advice I have for any filmmakers who are grappling with the music for their film is to be very cautious about your temp music because temp music is a double-edged sword. You fall in love with the temp music, but... Most of the time, you either have to get rid of it or you're going to have to pay a lot of money to keep it. So if you're throwing in a couple of tracks off of Abbey Road because you think it's really going to elevate your end credits, just remember not to fall too in love with it because, you know, likely you're going to have a composer who's going to have to do something a little bit different. So temp music is is always a fun challenge. It can be helpful, but, but you just have to be cautious with it. And then the main advice that I would give any filmmaker on any side of the production or post-production side would be to keep an open mind with collaborating and to communicate as much as possible. The most valuable thing 
and my job is a spotting session. And that's when we get together with the filmmaker and we spend an entire day and we talk through every scene of the film so that we can fully understand what they want and what they're expecting and what their vision is. The only way we're going to do a good job is if the filmmaker can communicate to us what their vision is for the film as a whole and for every scene in particular. So spotting sessions and tent music, those are my two bits of advice. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. I really enjoyed talking with Jacob, and I think a lot of the lessons that he shared really are secrets that future filmmakers and even people working in the business right now might be able to learn from in order to have a career filled with integrity and, from what I learned on the podcast, a good creative community that help create more and more films that audiences need to see because there's a different level of creativity and integrity that goes into Jacob's work. The music used on this podcast comes from the American Hemp series on Amazon Prime. It was created by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band and Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires. I am lucky to have such a creative collaborator. The host and producer of this episode is me, Josh Hyde. If you like what you heard on this episode, please share it with a friend. And I hope all of you enjoyed the lessons from the front lines of storytelling and creativity in the world today. Mm-hmm.